and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is yours, Recluse, a.k.a. Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit blog and author of a special relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, also all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book, I'm Out of Works, at the Farm's official store, which is at eFarmPodcast. That is eFarmPodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. At the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive gifts and content. And our all-access patrons have access to the farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here. Okay, I have got a repeater for this outing and a heavyweight one at that. He is Dr. Inferno, host of Doom Mintamore podcast, which discusses crime, parapolitics, apocalypticism, and extremism, all some of my favorite things. Thank you so much for joining us again, Doc. It's always an honor, Recluse. All right, guys, this is going to be an unbelievable show. Doc and I are taking the deepest dive of them all into the cesspool that is the Right Stuff blog and podcast. We'll be exploring its origins, its link to the National Justice Party, Sean Moon, and more importantly, who is behind it. And it is the latter that leads to quite a rabbit hole, one involving far-right circles in Russia centered around orthodoxy, monarchism, and traditionalism. But even more ominous is that this same milieu was instrumental for years in what was effectively the United States' stay-behind network. Similar to the Gladio counterparts in Europe, these paramilitary groups would in theory be activated if the U.S. was overrun by an invading force. But now... Thanks in no small part to the efforts of the TRS crowd, a part of this network may have been co-opted by these same Russian monarchists behind that uh, particular website and movement. And given the current state of affairs the world finds itself in, to say nothing of the numerous infrastructure disasters the U.S. has recently experienced, uh, they are up uh, 71%, I believe, uh, in the last year alone, if I'm not mistaken. The implications of this are beyond staggering. Doc and I will do our best to explain how this came about, the ideology fueling it, and what the end game may be. Simply put, this particular episode is important in light of the events in the world today. So, on that note, let us start the show.
Okay, Doc, real quick, can you give us an overview of this blog, The Right Stuff? Okay, let me get into the sordid details of this uh, particular blog. Uh, basically, what it started out is a small centrist, like free capital blog tied to Randian libertarianism. Really, honestly, it didn't have any kind of political bent. Um, it was started primarily just as a small blog, I believe, by Mike Enoch, uh, which we'll get into. It was basic libertarian principles such as free markets. Uh, Mike Enoch also wrote for the Von Mises Institute, which uh, is very prominent in, I believe, right-wing uh, libertarian circles. So fundamentally, it was just a libertarian blog, which you know would have started, I would guess, around 2013. Now, eventually, what's interesting about this is that around 2013, I don't think there was much meme culture. I think poll was kind of gaining, starting to gain traction. So this pretty much uh, coincides with the development of poll, and much of poll actually would be influential upon, uh, you know, the the right stuff. It wasn't even called the right stuff back in 2013. I don't know the specific name of it. I do know they had um, it was something like Big Capital or something like that. I know eventually it would turn into a Facebook cr group of, that was called, of all things, the He-Man Woman Hater Society. And I'm not kidding about this. It was really called that. Uh, and then it started to gain traction. And, of course, Mike uh, found a lot of his co-host there. He found Sven, who was a paint, just a house painter contractor uh, who worked for his father's um uh, you know, his father's like uh, company. And then you had Alex McNabb, who was kind of an EMT. All these people would just hang out together. Now, up until 2016 election, they were kind of neutral on the racial racial issue. And uh, this was around. But the shift kind of occurred when uh, they started to notice the escalation of racial topics on poll. Like I said, this coincides with the whole kind of meme war. Uh, when when people started getting a little more spicy online and talking about race and stuff, very controversial stuff like the JQ and TRS, of course, being opportune, uh, they decided to follow suit and they related more topics to race. Now, what was funny is that they had a diverse like I mentioned, they had a very, very diverse group of people. It was. There was African-Americans there. There were Asians there. There were all sorts of people there that were uh, posting. And they would often, like, you know, go on these things, these Skype calls. Now, their aspirations was to basically be a generic knockoff Opie and Anthony show. They just wanted to be like a shock jock show. Uh, so they were kind of mesmerized by the whole process of, you know, online culture. And um, like I mentioned, and. The Daily Showa was established uh, in 2014, which is a kind of a take on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. And of course, the Showa being a reference to the Holocaust uh, and, and the show. Um, and basically, they had an inner core and an outer core uh, of people. There were people on their periphery, which they absolutely despised, like people that were they called normies and... They were just fans and followers, and they can kind of consider these people to be below them, to be dirt beneath their feet. And like everybody in the outer core of this Facebook, these Facebook groups, and it was just a series of Facebook groups, uh, wanted to eventually go on TRS and broadcast and be a part of the broadcast. Now, just imagine 
they were in orbit of kind of uh, marginal, I don't want to say pathetic people, but they were very uh, disparate and desperate people that uh, probably were very susceptible uh, to this crowd. Just to add also, around 2016, I don't know if you remember when uh, during the far right used to do those Pinochet type of memes. The Pinochet memes where they had they were hanging basically communists out of helicopters. They were really heavily oh, yeah, the helicopter upon, ride thing. Yeah. Yes, they were really relying upon that. And they were memeing that. And they got that mainly from polls. So they were following that aesthetic. Now, what's interesting about these these particular Facebook groups is they function kind of sort of like secret societies in the modern era. And they have kind of a secret society component to them. And as you know, uh, these decentralized networks, uh, which they like to call pool parties, uh, oftentimes they entail this was where they got their message out to all of their followers across the United States. Uh, now, being privy and being the cool kids, you know, in these particular circles, they would collect information about the, they would collect information about their followers, kind of like a certain Adam Weishop. Adam Weishop. Uh, of the Vivarian Illuminati would, of course, collect information about his followers and utilize this as blackmail. And I'm talking about the real Illuminati, not the uh, fictional one. He would take you know, information and use it as blackmail. And this is what TRS perfected. TRS perfected the art of collecting information on people and blackmail. Um, and they would often use this and employ this uh, against any members that cared to reveal information about them and also to that wanted to break ranks from them. And uh, this would ensure co cooperations from people and they would stay a part of their network. Now, like quite honestly, most of their culture was just a mirror of pole. It was just kind of just, uh, it, they were not creative at all and not really original. They just took everything from pole, replicated it and made a mirror into this like weird right wing discordian culture. Uh, that you often talk about on your podcast, and basically it was just a it was just a carbon copy, and they had this other forum called the Five O Forum, uh, and everything, like I said, was snarky and sarcastic, and they were trying to be like Opie and Anthony. There were like other uh, flagship shows, of course, like Fash the Nation. I'm not sure if like your listeners are acquainted with any of this stuff, uh, but yes, it's it's they were trying to be sort of the right extreme right ring version of like Opie and Anthony and the Howard Stern show. And they were trying to like interject a little bit of irreverent type of comedy in there. And this was quite a, a transition and shift from, you know, the conventional uh, white supremacist, you know, of the old where they would just post on places like Stormfront or whatever. And they kind of rode that wave between the, the kind of, I would say the way between, um, you know, kind of white supremacist circles and libertarian circles, there is quite an overlap, whether people know this or not. Uh, far right libertarians, a lot of times are kind of um, parallel to a lot of these networks and that they tapped into that uh, zeitgeist. All right, let's consider a few of the characters behind this thing. You, um, let, well, let's start with the uh, figure here. Uh, usually, a good place too. This would be Mike uh, Pinovich, right? Alias Mike. Yeah, Pinovich. Yes, Pinovich. All right. So, what's this guy's story? Now, Mike Pinovich is an interesting character. He grew up in like a a rather wealthy suburb of Maplewood, New Jersey. Uh, this would be a very unlikely person uh, because they do come from a lap of luxury 
They come from, you know, um, a lot of wealth. Matter of fact, his father and his mother, respectively, uh, one of his mother is a provost at this uh, particular Manhattan college called ASA, and it's located in the heart of Manhattan. And his father, of course, uh, who is named Mike Pinovich Sr., is a retired um, old English professor. He's a professor of old English at the University of Pennsylvania. There you go. There's your Pennsylvania connection again. Uh, kind of interesting. And, of course, his mother's name being Paula, Paula Erickson. Uh, sorry, sorry. Enochins, Enochson Sipple. Um, now, she is very instrumental in leftist politics and largely progressive. Quite the opposite of her son, who would go from being a libertarian to arguably um, a neo-Nazi or white nationalist. Now, he had a relatively uneventful childhood. There's really nothing special about his childhood. He was he claims he was a popular kid in school. I don't want to really get into much of his childhood, but uh, that's kind of insignificant. But yeah, he's a rather, I, in my opinion, rather insipid uh, person, not, not, uh, not extremely creative. Uh, but what makes him, he, he went to go work at this um, uh, computer programming, uh, you know, kind of firm in in manhattan this is where he grew up largely had a lackluster college experience just going from one major to another as often wealthy sort of trust fund kids do and uh very really un uneventful and it seems like largely his only politics was tied to his online presence so what's interesting about him is more about sort of the people that hover around Mike Enoch. And by the way, that's, of course, not his real name. That's something he had to get after Charlottesville because his family was extremely embarrassed by, his, by their politics. Now, what's interesting is he had a wife uh, who was Jewish by the name of Ames Friedman. Ames Friedman, now that's kind of ironic. Somebody who ironic post online largely about you know, uh, the Holocaust, the Shoah, uh, various other sort of anti-Semitic things and tropes. Uh, but he turns out he has a uh, a Jewish wife. Now, Fried Ames Friedman is an interesting uh, character. She's involved with a lot of progressive politics all around New York. She's rather high up. Uh, she's representing various LGBT interests. She's representing various different interests in the far left. And she is deep in the far left ecosystem. And she has connections to the ADL and both B'nai B'rith. She even has a friendship. She even has a French, sorry, excuse me. She has a friendship with a guy named Scott Levin, uh, who is one of the regional directors of the ADL. Now that is going to probably come in play later when we see Mike Enoch get in trouble. And we discussed that in the uh, Charlottesville debacle. And ironically, um, you know, this is like I said, this is like rather ironically because their flagship show is called the daily show. And up to 2016 off writing the strength of Trump, they became a type of, you know, racial show. They became a white nationalist show, basically a white supremacist show. And um, what's interesting about Mike is he has connections to every single alt-right figure from a rather obscure ones, which your audience have probably never heard of, by the name of Greg Johnson, to uh, extremely, um, you know, 
public figures like Richard Spencer. Uh, he just he has connections to all these people. He even has connections to rather obscure ones uh, like, uh, you know, Andrew Anglin and also Weave, who uh, ran the Daily Stormer for a while. And that's kind of interesting. Uh, just piggybacking uh, off, you know, the TRS is also Jewish, correct? That I believe so. That's the rumor, at least going around in far right circles that he is. That's never been confirmed. His mother claimed claims that he was. He has Jewish ancestry, but that's kind of interesting that uh, Mike Enoch, the same allegations are actually, uh, you know, about him as well. Uh, That's never been confirmed. I mean, I will point out, um, you know, there has been a lot of evidence that far right elements in Israel have been backing a lot of their counterparts uh, in the U.S. Um, Oh, yeah. So it's very strange, but um. It is a thing, and I mean, it's also sort of uh, the waters of this are further muddied by the whole uh, dynamic with Russia and all of this as well, uh, because there was a tremendous amount of uh, immigration from uh, by Russian Jews into Israel, uh, kind of starting in the uh, late 70s, early 1980s, and really kind of climaxing during the 90s. It got to the point where I think by the late 90s something like 15 percent of the population of uh, yeah. israeli jews were from russia so we'll, we'll get this recluse also um a lot of those uh russians that immigrated to israel were not even jews a lot yeah, of them had converted to judaism just to get out of russia at the time so that's a rather interesting fact that a lot of people gloss over and let me also say, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. Well, a fair amount of them also ended up in the Israeli security services as well, because again, a lot of them, you know, growing up in Mother Russia, had uh, had some form of military or intelligence training. So that also, I believe, became an issue with the IDF uh, around the late '90s, early '90s. Though allegedly they resolved that, but yeah. So you know. Well, this, let- Oh, go ahead. Go, go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to well, just to say this is like kind of another component in these uh, very muddy waters that we'll be uh, diving into throughout this. <laughs> I want to say also that um, despite, you know, Enoch being kind of living an uneventful life, um, it seems like he picked up a lot of traction online, some traction he could never gather in real life. Um, in addition to that, it also when his why when he was doxxed finally by Antifa. Um, it was revealed that his, his wife, you know, had all these connections and was Jewish. This caused quite a stir in these communities and quite a dampered his legitimacy, uh, but still didn't stop any following that he had. I noticed that. And let me, let me also elaborate on something that is my theory about the far left and far right. And this will probably put me at odds at some of the people in your audience is I think many times some people on the far right are working with the far left. I think the the far right is giving the far left uh, some Antifa activists. They're giving them information about people on the far right, which are their rivals, and they're taking this and they're saying that oh we've uh, you know we've disrupted this type of Nazi network. Well, the truth is is that a lot of this comes from cooperation, and this is. This is very common in TRS's history. They cooperated with a lot of people on the left, a lot of people on the left that are especially connected to extremist, uh, you know, let's just say research and counter extremist research work together 
with TRS. And that is a part of my theory. I don't know how you feel about that recluse, but that's my, uh, that's my theory. Oh no, I think that makes a lot of sense, Doc. And, um, you know, as we will uh, kind of explore as we get into the origins of a lot of this stuff, um, there is a a very peculiar legacy of collaboration between elements of the far right and the far left, uh, in no small part to subtle rivalries uh, that goes back nearly a century and is uh, very uh, relevant to all the events playing out that we're currently describing. <laughs> So, right. Uh, by the way, do you have any idea why he chose Enoch uh, out of curiosity? Uh, off Enoch Powell, the, um, the uh, British. Okay, okay. Yes, I was thinking it would. that was yes. probably at least the official explanation, but nonetheless still fascinating. I don't think it's because there. of like his devotion, unfortunately. I don't think he's quite that esoteric or interesting enough to dive into the book of Enoch for my, you know, for my research. Yeah. I don't know. I've uh, often been surprised as to how metaphysically inclined some of these circles could be. Um, but anyway, let's let's touch on two other individuals behind TRS. So first up is Joseph Jordan, alias Eric Stryker. Now, this guy is extremely interesting. I have to say this guy is even fascinating to a certain extent, not only because he can habitually lie and also wear chameleon skin in whatever circle he's in, but also... He creates quite a backstory about himself. Now, he made his um, online entry into white nationalism uh, through the Daily Stormer around 2015. Now, largely, I believe, you know, these is large. These things are largely a LARP. These are people that are play acting a lot of these these things. They feel alienated. They feel kind of outside society. And so they sort of take on these identities now, he was also active in this uh, organization called the Trad Worker Party, which was started by another individual by the name of Matthew Heimbach, um, which, uh, which, you know, honestly, I think Heimbach is probably responsible for introducing a lot of the pro-Russian sentiment in white nationalist or uh, far-right communities. Um, now, his, uh, his nickname while he was in TWP was Nazi Joe. And he was described uh, by a Dutch journalist, uh, which was covering the party, uh, which I think was covered in a book, Everything You Love Will Burn, uh, called him looking like a cartoon character. Uh, and that's, I don't mean to like <laughs> the character assassination. That's exactly what he, what he described him as. Now, previously, he was a self-described liberal and a Marxist while attending Queens College. Now, what's funny about this is that he says he was actively protesting, uh, you know, the whole, he was part of the boycott, uh, divest, and sanction movement, and yet uh, nobody in pro-Palestinian movement, which he does show quite a lot of those tendencies, nobody in Queens College knows him uh, from his leftist days. He also claimed he was involved and he was a skinhead, um, and he also claimed he was in the black metal scene and nobody like knows this guy. Like nobody has any records of this guy in either one of these, um, subcultures. Uh, so that's kind of strange to be quite honest with you. Now, what is confirmed about him is during his time of Queens college is he established links with the far right Greek organization, the golden Dawn. 
I'm sure you're acquainted with the Golden Dawn. Uh, they said that he was an active member protesting on their behalf in throughout New York City. Now, um, he's not the only one with the far right links to the Golden Dawn, but uh, this is quite uh, prevalent and leads to people like Casa Pound, who I'm sure some people in your audience are familiar with. Now, that the the oddity of Stryker doesn't even stop there. Uh, it turns out he's uh, from a Uruguayan family. He's from South America. He lives in Flushing, Queens, in an immigrant community. Um, and addition to that, he's, of course, flirted with the Red-Brown Alliance. I believe there's a lot of talk now on the left about, you know, right infiltration uh, with a lot of, like, streamers like Haas and other people that are sort of flirting with this aesthetic of American populism. Well, Eric Stryker tried to make some alliance uh, with the far left and with the far right and build bridges, especially with the authoritarian uh, type of far left, not so much with the uh, moderates, uh, but more so with the, the Stalinists and the Maoist and uh, with, you know, the, the people that are into sort of extremism on the other side. Now, I think people on the left should be increasingly concerned about people like Stryker because they are popping up and cropping up on the Internet and they are tied to the uh, Eurasianist and Russian milieu, and they are gaining a lot of legitimacy and a lot of momentum. Uh, eventually, uh, Stryker, after like you know having various different podcasts on the TRS network, uh, would throw his ring into journalism, and he would have like NationalJustice.com, and on that particular story, which does tie into some of the things discussed on the on this podcast is he claims he was the person who joke he broke uh, the story about Joshua, Joshua Caleb Sutter of the Temple of Blood. And that is just another embellishment. As you know, like this was a part of the FBI, uh, you know, infiltration of like the far right group, Adam Waffen. And of course, this was a lie. This Nate Thayer already had covered this uh, back in 2017, which is an interesting story into itself. But What's what's funny about this is Steve Bannon gave Eric Stryker a shout out. He said outstanding works of journalism. Now, that's kind of curious if you consider like Bannon's connections to traditionalism and also to Dugan and also a Stryker's connection to Dugan, uh, which comes primarily from the TWP. Uh, he continues uh, to be active in like white extremist politics and he's often uh, syndicated by this other, uh, this other syndicated sort of news aggregate uh, called the Unz Report, uh, which strikes me also ironic, considering Ron Unz is also a Jew and related, and and very vested in eugenics and racial topics. Uh, much like you know Mikey Knock, he spoke at the local Charles Bowsman sponsored inaugural. NJP conference in Lancaster, PA on August 15, 2020. So quite an interesting uh, fellow. Indeed, indeed. And uh, that brings us to the last character of consideration. This would be a uh, Mr. Tony Hovator? Hovator. 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 Okay. What now, names these blokes have. I know. <laughs> 
And by the way, um, I want to say Stryker's not, of course, his real name. It's uh, it's a monarchy he bought he got from the uh, Julius Stryker, the uh, Nazi propagandist, is is where he got that name from. Which there are actually people in real life named Eric Stryker. They must be honored uh, by this guy to have this guy's name. Now Tony, um, he joined TRS primarily after he uh, lost his job. And he was interviewed by the New York Times. They did an op-ed piece on him where he tried to show that white nationalists and white extremists are just normal, everyday people like everybody else. Uh, Having these types of notions and feelings is America as apple pie. And he tried to actually show that. And you'll find this kind of interesting about this particular person, uh, Recluse he has a apple pie tattoo in commemoration of Twin Peaks. <laughs> he actually has an apple pie, you know, kind of a tattoo in commemoration of like his love of Twin Peaks. And he goes on and on in this in, in this particular New York op-ed piece about how much he loves Twin Peaks, how much he loves, uh, you know, Seinfeld and how normal he is. And. What's kind of curious? I don't know that you would necessarily use Twin Peaks as a uh, an indication of how normal you are. Quite frankly, <laughs> well, he did. He yeah, he actually... that's that's kind of a sign that yeah, he's <laughs> he's a little more outside the box. Than, uh... Yeah, I found that interesting that he tweeted on Twitter um, that he loved Twin Peaks so much, and he was talking about it. And Mark Frost actually responded to him and said. Oh, seriously? Yes, we don't want Nazis liking our show. <laughs> Can't you not? Oh, that's great. He actually said that. Um, now, what's interesting about this is that the T, he was also in the TWP. He's one of the founding members. Uh, that's the common thread to a lot of these people, except for Enoch and uh, some of the other people that are in a network. But yeah, TWP is a common element in all of these people's sort of backstory and he's one of the founding members and what which is kind of unusual he apparently and a lot of twp members they have access to people in the splc the adl and the press that kind of makes you wonder why is that why do they have access to journalists and reporters in the you know in the press why do these far-right extremists like have access to these people uh, which kind of makes me question kind of the other side as well, if they're really le- as legit as many of these people. Um, so basically he lost his job because of the New York Times. Um, you know, some, I guess people read the story and said, we don't want a Nazi working at our job and uh, fired him, which kind of is unfortunate, in my opinion. I think it's kind of unfortunate people lose their jobs. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm not I'm not a, too keen on these people's ideology, but I don't think people should lose their job necessarily. I know that'll put me in a lot of hot water, um, but that's very suspect to me that he's like into, you know, he's into all these things and still the journalists are. Uh, now, this is where TRS swoops in. TRS has done this repeatedly to um, to various different fellow travelers. They've sweep. They've swept in. They've adopted these people. And if I what I believe is they they act as their friends, and then they sort of coerce them along the line to uh, manipulate them and probably gather a lot of dirt on them. And if they choose to ever 
um, you know, go outside of TRS or break that sort of bond, the brotherhood. They're thrown to the wayside. They're thrown to the wolves out there in society. Now they have a, they're kind of like, I would say, a moral mafia. They, they hold these things over people's heads and they take desperate people uh, with, extre- with extreme views who are kind of in a social bind and use it against them uh, and to, in order for them to remain loyal to them. And as I mentioned previously, he was in TWP with uh, Matt Parrott and Matt Heimbach back in 2014. And of course, this would probably prime him to lead the, uh, be one of the contributors to the NJP. Now, initially, what's interesting about this guy is like a working class guy. He tries to establish a welding school uh, for white nationalists, white extremists, and LARP Nazis. And he gets hired. Um, He wants to get them hired without getting doxxed by leftist journalists and activists. And after um, the NJP is formed, he quit his job and went just full force into the NJP. So basically, he devoted his entire life uh, to the NJP party. And I would say his function primarily within the NJP is to uh, collect information on people and their social media, uh, kind of probably even keep a dossier on people and then leak it to uh, leftist activist. And then the leftist activist, of course, leaks it to the press. And that seems to be the cycle that uh, goes on in a lot of these uh, these outfits. Oh, it's even more fascinating than you might imagine, as we will get to here in a little bit. Um, All right, so there's no shortage of controversy surrounding TRS and their related bodies. So let's start with the Unite the Right uh, rally from 2017. What was their involvement in this shit show? Oh, boy. Um, Boy, are they involved. And I have to say, the whole incidents around Charlottesville are rather cloudy. And if you look look back at this in like retrospect and 2023, I mean, there are just a lot of odd circumstances that surrounded on multiple sides. Uh, what's even odd is that there was a Klan rally previously to the Charlottesville that went uh, without a hitch and without and went without incident uh, prior to that. There was then they were marching around um, with, you know, with, I believe, even weapons. So that's kind of odd that that happened, you know, um, in Charlottesville. And when these particular people showed up, it was, uh, you know, there was disruption. Say what you will about their politics. Uh, just kind of odd. Just strikes me kind of odd. And now they claim that they their permits were lawfully, you know, to protest the Confederate statues. And like I mentioned before, there there was a Klan rally before, and um, there was a basically this was a gathering of every single decrepit uh, right wing organization you can imagine. Like everyone was there: uh, Vanguard America, Trad Workers Party, Identity Europa, and uh, many even extreme right neo Nazi websites, as the Daily Stormer uh, we mentioned earlier. And you might find this of interest. Um, Recluses. They also had a lot of neo Confederates there, such as Michael Hill, um, who is uh, tied heavily, I believe, in the Confederate underground that you discussed uh, very, very heavily. And I'm, I bet you, if you follow that guy's trail, you'll probably find a lot. Now, this was organized by a guy named Jason Kessler. Mike Enoch was involved. 
and of course Richard Spencer and our favorites, um, our favorite Thelemites, Augustus Invictus, uh, were heavily involved in the planning of the event. And it's important to note, like I mentioned before, is that the alt-right and the extreme right online were kind of one big cesspool where everybody gathered. Everybody gathered online and everybody was gathering in these circles. And uh, there was just linkages between all these different kinds of people. Um, but Jason Kessler is another interesting uh, person because he was one of the main organizers. And the civil suit that was levied against uh, Jason Kessler, he bore the greatest brunt of that civil suit. And actually, uh, what's what's odd? What's not odd actually is Spencer did too. Spencer got sued for millions of dollars because of that civilly. And Mike Enoch was right there with uh, Jason Fields, who uh, who would uh, run over Heather Heyer. Uh, I think Heather Heyer. Okay, um, he was right there uh, by marching, and Jason Fields was in uh, you know Vanguard America. And Mike Enoch was right there. Mike Enoch was also at the rally posed with a semi-automatic weapon. That was there's pictures that leaked of him posing with a semi-automatic weapon. And addition to that, the TWP was rumored to have, you know, semi-automatic weapons themselves. Now, I'm gonna venture to say that a lot of the counter-protesters that were there may have been genuine. They may have not wanted, you know, um, neo-Nazis to march in their town, which is understandable. Um, but it's curious to me that I mentioned previously that a TRS participant, Eric Stryker and others, they have connections to the far left and were progressive and Marxist respectively before they embraced the far right. Now, the case with Stryker, um, he hosted Antifa activists such as Bronx Blogger and other communists on his format on a TRS format. And that's kind of weird. And like all this interplay kind of reminds me of the clashes that I saw that occurred during the years of lead. Uh, but I would gather the far uh, left and right dialectics uh, within Italy, quite unlike America, probably were authentic in America. It's kind of just a, a sideshow. Um, it's just, you know, it's just orchestration. It's just kind of acting. Now what's also odd about Mike is shortly after uh, being pursued by Roberta Kaplan um, for criminal and civil charges, he somehow gets out of the charges. He gets out of the charges. Everyone else that was involved there, they got charged and Mike Enoch was able to slither out of the charges. And he was, he was not charged at all. And on the new civil trial, when they brought it up in 2021 on Twitter, an Antifa activist on Twitter actually apologized to Mike Enoch for mentioning his name along with the defendants. Now, this is where I believe his wife's connections, Ames Friedman, uh, to leftist activists, activist and also the ADL regional director comes into play. I mean, I have not been able to verify that, but I'm willing to bet that that had a large, large, um, was largely responsible for him being let go of uh, charges from Charlottesville after Charlottesville followed everybody that was involved, uh, whether through deaths or through charges. It followed them, and it followed them like a specter. Fascinating. 
but again, not surprising and not this milieu. And um, certainly as we will see, there is a reoccurring pattern of certain individuals in the far right being protected time and again. All right, Doc. So uh, let us get into the political party, quote unquote, this crew founded. It's uh, called the National Justice Party. That's really cute, right? What's its story? <laughs> It has quite a backstory. Now, like I said about TRS, it initially just started as a subscription-based far-right shock jock uh, political commentary network and uh, basically rode the wave of the 2016 Trump election. And from this angle, now they decided, like I mentioned earlier, they decided to take a racial turn and drifted more into taboo subjects. And just copied poll and got a, a substantial fan base of um, of people. And this um, this National Justice Party theoretically is supposed to function as just a charity group for like the everyday working class uh, individual, uh, white individual in uh, America. And my personal opinion, and and most likely this is what the evidence shows is that it was probably a way to, let's just say, ride the grift. Um, it was a way to brand, rebrand themselves and to uh, reach out the outside of the fringes and achieve political legitimacy. And uh, this is largely what it functions uh, like today and probably even getting outside you know, funding, which we'll explore. Um it basically just justified it as a way to get generate money from their audience um, while trying to provide research. Uh, just a public facing like internet group. Now, what's peculiar about this this group is its logo. Its logo is copied from the National Democratic Party of Germany. Now, coupled with the fact that Enoch got out of criminal and civil charges from his involvement with Charlottesville. This is especially suspicious. Well, it might seem so to many, considering how most far-right organizations work, uh, eventually become co-opted by intelligence agencies and they cooperate with such indices, uh, that the NJP might function this way. Now, if for people that are unacquainted, the Democratic Party of Germany, which is like a post-World War II National Socialist Party, functions in pretty much the same way. Uh, the Antifa in Germany, they complained that the German government just doesn't crack down on any of these, any of this party. Well, uh, the reason why is because the German government and the German intelligence actually told Antifa of Germany. The reason why they don't is because um, first to justify a lot of their purposes of like propaganda of in the media. And also it is to justify uh, their their own very own dialectics and it is like serves as kind of an entrapment uh, for a lot of people and that is the primary function of the national uh, democratic party of germany so it's kind of odd that uh, you know a group like the national justice party would adopt uh, such a such an icon and aesthetics for their group but they say it's just irony and that is a lot of this is attributed to just irony it's just sort of a uh, um, uh, right-wing discordianism, and it's not really to be taken seriously. It's just one big joke. 
All right, Doc, it's time to uh, pull the veil back a bit. Let's talk some Charles Balsman, the guy funding many of these endeavors. So what is his origin story? Now, Balsman, his family tree traces its presence to Lancaster County to the 1700s. That's interesting considering that um, they largely own their own large portion of Lancaster territory. Uh, Balsman grew up within the U.S. uh, part of his life in uh, Connecticut, a suburb of Greenwich, uh, Greenwich, sorry, Greenwich, and also partially in Moscow, which he lived up to the age four up until he was eight years old. His father worked as a bureau chief for the Associated Press um, during the Brezhnev, Brezhnev, sorry, Brezhnev era. Uh, and by the way, audience, forgive me for pronouncing a lot of the, the Slavic uh, words. Uh, Russian is not my first language, so I apologize to all you guys. Now, according to Bowsman, um, after you know they returned to uh, Russia, and this is from his own words, uh, they lived in a suburb, of course, I said, of Greenwich, 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 um, Greenwich uh, Connecticut, which was heavily populated with uh, Russian immigrants. Now, this is not the only thing that is interesting about Bowsman. His pedigree is interesting, considering that his great-grandfather on his paternal side was the first African-American to graduate from Harvard University. And likewise, his name was Richard T. Grenier, Grenier, who himself, ironically, was a diplomat to Tsarist Russia for seven years at the end of the 19th century. Now on his maternal German side, his grandfather spent two years on the Eastern Front during World War II. And after his uh, youth in an upper middle class uh, suburb of Connecticut, he graduated from uh, Wellslin and he went to study business at Columbia where he graduated college in like the late eighties and returned to Russia and worked for the NBC news. Now that's thanks to his father's connections from there. He parlayed these connections into a multilingual fixer for entrepreneurs seeking to take advantage of the fall of the Soviet union. And this is around a time of a lot of turmoil in the Soviet union. And um, it's believed from these connections that he established uh, deep connections to the Russian oligarchs. Now, this would serve him in his further pursuits for being an American spokesperson for Russia. This is documented, by the way, in a book called Beer, uh, sorry, Bear Hunting in Portoboro, an inside account of Moscow's free-willing entrepreneurs and why Soviet capitalism won't work, January 1st, 1992. Now, it seems like he was not extremely successful despite the connections he established and he uh, filed for bankruptcy in 1999. Um, now this would begin a series of Russian private equity jobs, never being able to firmly establish himself. Bowsman's role with the agribusiness investor, AVG capital partners as a director of investor relations would prove a breakthrough and break his lack of success. It was probably through this these connections he began to garner the attention of people who were close to Putin. Although 
when exactly he began his foray into Russian uh, as a Russian propagandist is rather uncertain. His social media, and that is VK, uh, does indicate that he began move, moving more towards the Russian orthodoxy and deep into more uh, militant waters with his membership to an internet group called the Internet Militia, <laughs> which served a purpose to protect and defend information uh, from American propaganda. And uh, that would probably begin his interest into the far right. All right. So when did he become involved with Russia Insider and what did this entail? Okay. He became involved with the Russia Insider around 2014. Um, now, he claims this is to positive, positively promote the image of Russia to Americans. Now, as you know, this is around the same time. This coincides with the Crimea invasion. And uh, this was at the forefront of Russian politics. The Russia at this time was getting a lot of bad press uh, in American media. Around 2014, it was revealed in uh, leaked emails that uh, Mr. Bowsman was corresponding with an associate of the Russian oligarch Malofiev, uh, which who in turn praised Mr. Bowsman's Russia insider as pro-Russian and noted that he wants to cooperate. Um, it's believed that during this time that Malafev gave money to Bowsman uh, to start his, like, uh, you know, to expand his Russia Insider. He started a kick funder from online. And, um, well, uh, Malafev is rather uh, elusive about his involvement with Bowsman and for good reasons. Uh, one, I kind of posit that he wanted a kind of unorganized, uh, let's just, he wanted to organize kind of undocumented networks, um, decentralized networks uh, to reach into America. Uh, and Russia today began having Bowsman on um his their program on their format um, to to showcase Russia Insider, which you which a lot of the audience probably knows that um, Russia Insider is largely just a propaganda puff piece uh, for the Russian government. It is totally sponsored and by the Russian government and totally um, formatted for the Russian government. He was then invited on many state-sponsored panels. Uh, one is called Russiev uh, Sigoni, Sigoniev Information Agency on the topic of Alexander Zionvinik. And like I said, guys, I'm sorry if I mispronounced all these words. Um, the reality of planned history, which on all appearances appear to revolve around the concept of the multipolar world. Uh, which, as you guys know, uh, figures rather prominently in alt-right circles and was rather adopted uh, by Dugan. And it's largely an extension of Dugan's own own ideology. His works have been promoted. What's interesting also is that um, Mal Malifov is not the only person, not the only oligarch which sponsored his, his, um, his program. R-A-I-F-A-M which has been linked to uh, Yevzebny um, Prizogian, Prizogian, 
who is an oligarch who is and by the way, I'm sorry for mispronouncing. I think it's uh Yevgeny Prigzgoznian, who is an oligarch who is indicated by special counsel to uh Robert S. Mueller. And that's pretty much I think his uh his involvement and how Russia Insider kind of got off the ground. All right. So what are his uh what are Bowsman's links then to TRS and NG, NJP and that whole milieu? Okay. Now it's it's hard to pinpoint exactly what are the linkages to TRS and NJP made with Bowsman. But What's interesting, and I haven't mentioned this person, but there is like a particular person by the name of Matthew Q. Uh, Gerbert. He worked for the Bureau of Energy Resources. He worked for the State Department in America. What's curious about him is he's based out of D.C. He's based out of Northern Virginia. And he has um, he has kind of a Russian spouse and much like most of these people you encounter on TRS. And TRS, by the way, has a lot of really weird connections to people in the military and to um, to, to other like operatives, especially their neo-Confederates. And this, this particular guy, he had a podcast on TRS. It was called uh, Full House. Uh, they've since parted ways, and they've since left the network. And apparently... Uh, this guy was was uh, kind of high up, not really high up, but he had a lot of diplomatic ties to Russia. And that's where I think Bowsman probably uh, began getting associated with TRS. Uh, by the way, his online name is Coach Flintstock. Uh, he was very prominent in the 2016 and 2017 sort of meme wars. Um, knew people like Ricky Vaughn. Um, who some people in the audience may be familiar with. Also, another alternatively, I think another connection that could have possibly came uh, to TRS's lap from TWP is Matthew Heimbach's connection to the Orth Russian Orthodox Church, which he is a member of, uh, which inversely, uh, Dugan is also a uh, person that uh, was connected to uh, TWP and even spoke at their inaugural uh, foundations back in 2014. Now, I mean, this doesn't indicate anything because Dugan is all over the place, uh, everywhere it seems. Uh, but it is rather curious, in my opinion, that um, all of a sudden, that a lot of these networks they adopt um, Russian Orthodox Christianity, and they adopt this as their worldview. And um, another thing which links Bowsman to the far right and to like, uh, you know, white nationalists is back in 2018, he started carrying syndicated columns by Eric Stryker. Eric Stryker would often write about, uh, you know, the Russian czars and he'd write about how they, it was Jewish ritual murder uh, for which the czars were sacrificed. And this prompted, and th this is, quite prominent, I would say, in the, the Russian Orthodox community still. Um, not every person, of course, because Bowsman uh, was was disavowed by the Russian Orthodox community after he dropped an article called It's Time to Drop the Jew Taboo. Now, this brought him, like I said, a lot of controversy, but a lot of sympathy 
from the TRS crowd. A lot of the TRS crowd uh, garnered a lot of sympathy from Bowsman. And I think this was probably an opportune sort of time for Bowsman to latch upon this particular uh, kind of fringe subculture online and utilize this to the best of his advantage to carve out a fiefdom. Um, he wanted to he wanted to carve out a fiefdom online and he wanted to extend his reach into American politics. Now, why choose like white nationalism or white extremism as a means to transfer a lot of this um, information and transfer a lot of this power because it never really translates into power or politics? I don't know. But I think he saw this as kind of a fifth column uh, in into America and a very vulnerable and a very kind of disparate uh, population that he could just seize on to. Um, now, also around this time, let me just say, he also financed, uh, as I mentioned previously, the nationaljustice.com, uh, Eric Stryker's flagship uh, website. Around this time, he inherited about $2.6 million uh, due to his mother's death. And... You know, he probably wanted to take this money and throw it around. And he thought that because the Internet was, you know, Internet hate was kind of gaining a lot of momentum and a lot of steam, uh, that this would be a good way to invest this uh, two points, uh, some of this two point six million. Um, and he also put money, like I mentioned, and like I said, possible links to TWP. And he also provided his property of residence as a platform for NJP speaking engagements. And as a headquarters for many of NJP's party, uh, Trey Garrison, Greg Conti, and many others have lived on Bowsman's property. And even he registered the NJP as being the official, his property as being the official headquarters of NJP, uh, most likely. And he provided the, the money for like improvement and reach of the TRS network. Uh, and I st you started to notice, and I'm not a regular viewer of TRS. I don't really watch their stuff, but... I do keep tabs on them, and it seems like around this time of 2019 to 2020, a lot of their equipment and their production values started being more professional. And it was apparent from like the videos that you would see of, of these, these people. Um, if you compare from 2016 to 2020, um, it was just professional level, and everything was had a green screen, and there was just a lot of uh, professional type quality equipment that was not there previously. Also, the message of TRS sort of shifted. They shifted away more from their hardline sort of racist, uh, you know, uh, they're also anti-Semitic rhetoric. Uh, they calmed it down a little bit. They weren't talking about the Holocaust or, or uh, gas chambers or making jokes about uh, stoves or ovens. Uh, they were uh, they were kind of polishing it up a little bit. That that meant that was priming them for like the political um, atmosphere. Um, and so like their their message started becoming more pro Russian, more pro Russian in its in their stance as compared to previously, where they were partial on the whole Russia question. And let me let me just interject this also uh, from my own observations in like far the far right and uh, white extremist communities is that there is a bit of a civil war being engaged in the in these communities. Uh, one side is going for Ukraine, and the other side is going for Russia. And it appears that largely 
uh, they're saying that the Russian side is uh, being aided uh, by Russian and intelligence. And what's also curious is that Serbia and the Balkans figure uh, prominently into white nationalist or white extremist communities. Uh, like I mentioned, a lot of the anti-Serbs, they tend to favor the Ukraine. And a lot of the pro-Serbs, they tend to favor more of the uh, Russia uh, rhetoric online. And that's just my own observations from all that. And that may this probably plays a factor in this because TRS pretty much runs a lot of the fringes of the alt-right and a lot of uh, the so-called respectable uh, white nationalists, which are just sort of polished turds comparatively to the other side. Well, yeah, no, that's definitely interesting because the whole uh, Ukrainian question has been at the center of a lot of controversy in the far right, uh, I mean, arguably for almost a century now, uh, which I probably get to here. going to get into some of the aspects of this that really stood out to me uh and that's uh, specifically related to the orthodox monarchist traditional circles that have been backing Bowsman. so i've got a uh, little information on this that i wanted to share all right so <clears throat> you guys have heard a little bit about this constantine uh mafia guy he's been described as russia's answer to george soros and not without reason Presently, he heads a variety of foundations, many of them traditional or monarchist leaning. And the flagship of these is the Russian Orthodox charity known as the St. Basil the Great Charitable Foundation. And like Mr. Soros, Mal appears Mal to have uh, periodically used his foundation to engage in regime change. So this is most evident in Ukraine. Malfia, uh, his security chief, a former SB colonel uh, known variously as Igor Stro Strokov or uh, Gherkin, accompanied Malfia to uh, the, the Crimea a week before the 2014 invasion. Gherkin later became a leader in the Donbass insurgency, rising to the level of a minister of defense in the breakaway province. And he was even linked to the uh, Malaysia Airlines Flight 17 incident and left Ukraine under murky circumstances not long afterwards. So this would have been 2014. Alexander Borodai, a former Malfivea employee, was briefly prime minister in the Donbass during this time as well. So regardless, both Gherkin and uh, Bordiai appear to have played a key role in solidifying Russian control over the Ukrainian rebels by August 2014. So i got a quote here for you guys from an excellent work called Ukraine and the Crossfires by uh, Chris Casper de Pulig, I believe, uh, which is actually quite uh, anti-Ukraine uh, and U.S. So uh, this isn't, you know, a... <laughs> necessarily a biased one here for the russians in this case but we'll get into some of that here in a minute but anyway this is taken from page 203 uh, it goes uh russian control over the rebellion had solidified since august 2014 after which the rebels were integrated into an overall command structure following orders from russian military handlers notably the russian state did not solely gain influence through military and financial support 
A string of assassinations has befallen independent minded and anti ogolark rebel leaders, which could not be traced to the Ukrainian military. These assassinations came as evidence surfaced of Russian meddling in the Donbass general election in 2014. The Communist Party and the Donetsk People's Republic, not to be confused with the aforementioned Communist Party in Ukraine popper, was not allowed to participate, supposedly for technical reasons. When its leader, Boris Litvinov, challenged the decision, he received a phone call from Russian state advisor Alexander Borodai, that would be uh, Malfidia's uh, employee, former employee, who told him to drop his objections and remain loyal, emphasizing Russian support for the rebels. The Donbass insurgents have hero status in Russia, and it seems the state preferred not to have leftist and anti-Ogolarchic ideals spread, end quote. So this guy, this former mafia uh, employee, was uh, quite instrumental in the original Russian uh integration of the forces in Ukraine and the Donbass in 2014 and this has continued and this was you know also the first time that there was you know probably a formal Russian military presence in there though certainly in this kind of private capacity uh so getting into here a little bit more with uh, Malfia it's believed also that he was a key linkman between his former employees in the Ukraine and the Russian government and he also took a trip to the Crimea just a couple of weeks before the invasion again with this Gherkin Igor Gherkin character uh, which appears to have also been an intelligence gathering operation so I want to step back here for a second make an interesting point about Malfia here He's essentially running, on the one hand, uh, a kind of psychological operation, or at least funding partly a psychological operation through this stuff with TRS and what have you. But then conversely, you see him here also sponsoring these full-blown paramilitary, or allegedly potentially sponsoring <laughs> these full-blown paramilitary operations in uh the provenances of you of the donbass here in ukraine so you know you have a combination here of sort of special operations and psychological warfare and this is actually a very common component or a very common combination in both the united states and russia and really most countries uh, i mean it arguably goes back to the british uh, with the ministry of economic warfare during the second world war this housed the uh ministry or the uh was it the propaganda or psychological operations executive or psychological warfare executive and also the special operations executive which was sort of the precursor to this special air services and so forth so we adopted the model here somewhat in the OSS, but especially, and then later in uh, the Office of Policy Coordination. But uh, it was especially in the uh, military where special operations and psychological warfare are very closely intertwined. In the Army Special Operations Command, there are three components to it. Uh, there's the special operators, which we all know, the commandos and so forth. There's the psychological warfare detached component of it. And there's the civic action component, which is never talked about, which is because it's basically our political warfare cadres. Uh, but that's another story. So, and this is this true also of the Joint Special Operations Command and all this other good stuff. It's always connected like that. Same thing with France, for instance. They also had their psychological warfare and their special operators tied together. And this was the uh, major 
element of the French army that read the uh, revolt against Gaul uh, during the Algerian conflict and all that good stuff eventually uh, created the special or secret army organization, the OAS, and then uh, uh, the remnants of that set up a Ginter Press, which again was on the one hand a, uh, a group that engaged in terrorism and paramilitary activities. It was active in a lot of the stuff Doc was alluding to with the years of lead. So, you know, you again, you see this connection there with these full-blown paramilitary operations. But then on the flip side of the coin, they were actually a full-blown press agency. Hmm. They issued a lot of articles. Yeah. In fact, they even infiltrated communist presses, all this other good stuff. And um, the Russians you know, really became obsessed with this in certain circles. Um, in a few intelligence circles, they even developed this concept that was known as the Second Barbarossa. And this came after the failed Prague uprising in 1956. But this greatly disturbed the Russians because, uh, you know, obviously the first Barbarossa was the Nazi push uh, that it almost worked. And in this case with Prague, it was a different kind of push. It was one that was mainly, uh, it was mainly carried out through psychological warfare the fifth columnists and while they managed to put it down it was very very effective it didn't really require a lot of money or assets or anything on the ground to accomplish either and as best i can tell the russians really became obsessed with this notion uh, and this is why you know again i think there's a tendency to sort of overlook the importance of psychological operations but the uh the soviets and then later the russians very much felt that uh they were capable of doing a tremendous amount of damage within both their own country and against their opponents. Uh, so it's not that surprising that you would see this guy, a guy like uh, Mafia, being used in this capacity. And it's actually the same thing with the uh, the founder of the Wagner Group as well. On the one hand, I mean, you have the uh, you know the private military company that he runs which does all these special operations and all this other stuff. And the flips of the coin, he kind of cut his teeth uh, with the Internet Research Agency, the so-called Notorious Troll Farm. So again, you know, you see the same kind of stuff that uh, Mafia is uh, engaged in here. So a lot of this stuff is very closely interconnected. Uh, but anyway, so let's get back here to Constantine. So who is this guy? Well, he cut his teeth working for Renaissance Capital, an investment bank specializing in frontier markets. It was founded in Russia during the mid-1990s, uh, during the whole looting spree and what have you, and eventually it relocated to London after running foul Putin's regime. It was a key access point for Western capital from its founding in 1995 till uh, about 2012 when its owner, Ogolark Mikhail Provikov, uh, or Provik, uh, Prohorvov, uh, began to oppose Putin. So anyway, regardless, Malfivia uh, pl uh, pleased somebody. So by 2005, he founded Marshall Capital, which soon became a multi-billion dollar investment firm specializing in telecommunications. Obviously, telecommunications have tremendous value for psychological and information operations and have long been the target of uh, intelligence communities and such. But again, you know, where did this guy get the money from for his sudden rise and where was his support coming from? This is where things get really interesting. Malfia 
appears to have been a protege of an enigmatic figure known as Sergi D. Palin, or possibly Phelan, it's P-A-H-L-E-N. This guy is a descendant of an aristocratic white Russian family that's been based out of Paris since uh, the Russian Revolution. His family is interesting. So the de Palins are a Baltic German noble house. His grandfather, Graf or Count Sergei von der Palin, uh, was a white Russian who died in Paris in 1966. His father, Sergei Cernovich von der Palin, allegedly fought with the Nazis in the Eastern Front during the Second World War. So he's possibly a Vazilov's army eventually or something to that effect. Anyway, uh, the current D. Palin uh, became a part of a Geneva-based white Russian network involved in finance. But his big score occurred in the 1980s when he married into the Agnelli family of Italy. So these are the people who founded Fiat. Uh, the patriarch Giovanni Agnelli was a big supporter of Mussolini and Italian fascism. Because of course he was. And it's unknown if Agnolia members were active in propaganda Dewey, but they were certainly friendly, friendly with the longtime figurehead in it, Lucia Gallia, and provided support for other P2 members like uh, Sogno's possible coup during the late 1970s. And again, if you've listened to the first installment of my series in Far West uh, Limited, you know that P2 was very closely tied into this whole network that was uh, destabilizing Russia during the 1980s. It involved the whole Bulgarian connection, all this other good stuff uh, that the U.S. intelligence community was effectively trying to use to corrupt and gangsterfy uh, the Soviet intelligence services, which they did a damn good job of by all accounts. <laughs> So anyway, this is important to keep in mind when you consider this guy here, De Palin, all right? Anyway, De Palin is based in this, is part of this uh, network in Geneva of these white Russian financiers who have sponsored several of Putin's key oligarchs besides Malfia. And they've been involved in a lot of Western influence operations. Other beneficiaries of this network include Vladimir Yukinan, and uh, Ginandi Timchenko. So as for the other Geneva white Russians, uh, there are two other significant figures that I wanna consider here briefly. So one is Jean Guchkov and the other is Alexander Trusbetskoy. So the former of these is really interesting. Uh, Guchkov is a successful banker who worked for the Inter-Maritime Bank of New York, Jules Beer and HSBC. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this know that uh, HSBC has long been implicated in drug trafficking and all kinds of other money laundering centric things. Uh, allegedly, he is part of a uh, uh, this whole white community that has been uh, cultivated by uh, Timchenko, who was a major Putin-aligned Russian oligarch, he seems to have maybe run afoul a little bit recently, but Guchkov uh, still appears to be going strong in this whole network. And just this guy, his whole just background is incredible. Uh, so to start off with, he, uh, as I said before, he started out in the Inter-Maritime Bank of New York, and this is really important because it ties directly into a Swiss financier called Bruce Rappaport. Uh, so this character became the largest shareholder in the Bank of New York, 
as opposed to the Inner Maritime Bank of New York during 1982. The Bank of New York, by the way, is just, it shows up in so much stuff. And it actually, I mean, going all the way back, it was founded by Alexander Hamilton, the Secretary of Treasury, and also one of the leading figures in the Society of Cincinnati. And it was actually closely aligned with that group. So it's, from its very beginning, it's kind of been the center of a lot of these intrigues, and this uh, tradition has continued onward, as we're going to see here. So anyway, uh, Mr. Rappaport, through the I-B-O-N-Y, that's the Inter-Maritime Bank of New York, used the B-O-N-Y, the Bank of New York, to launder drug money for Sion Mogliovich during the 1990s. This would be the uh, Ukrainian Jewish... Uh, figure who is believed to be the boss of boss of the russian mafia this is probably nonsense but again if you've listened to the first installment of my far west limited series you know that he was a close collaborator with robert maxwell he was actually one of the figures deeply involved in the immigration of so many quote-unquote russian jews into israel and on the whole a very significant organized crime figure even if he has been overblown somewhat Anyway, he uh, this um, through these connections to it possibly was linked into Minotap, another uh, financier that I talk about in the Far West Limited series. This uh, outfit was involved in financial scandals involving the Yeltsin family during the 1990s, and um, Minotap, which is in E. M-E-N-A-T-A-P, was also a descendant of a bank called Banco Ambrosiano, which uh, was run by a figure known as Roberto Calvia, another propaganda doing member and one who ended up hanging dead uh, from Blackfriars Bridge in London. <laughs> so again, you see the, the whole lineage here of propaganda doing and all this. Anyway, Rappaport also had dealings with the uh, BCCI, of course he did, and allegedly on behalf of good old William Casey, the uh, director of the CIA during the height of the whole Iran-Contra thing. Uh, Rappaport was also accused of laundering money for drug cartels via his earlier venture at the Swiss American Bank, and he may have also provided the Medellin cartel with arms. So this was one of Gutchkov's protégés. <laughs> but he also could look to his family as well. Uh, another interesting thing that I will point out about the Gutskov's family is, uh, let's see here. All right. So his grandfather was a guy called Alexander Gutskov, who was a member of the Second and Third Duma uh, during the Tsarist era. He was apparently involved in a lot of intrigues. These involved spreading letters that exposed Rasputin's sway over the Tsar Arena Alexandria. Uh, during World War I, he headed the Red Cross on the German front. He helped sway, persuade the Tsar to advocate after the February Revolution broke out, and he briefly became the Minister of War in the Russian Provisional Government. However, he was then in turn ousted uh, after, uh, by a leak that uh, showed his support for continuing Russian involvement in the unpopular First World War. Anyway, he had to flee Russia after the October Revolution and became involved as a leading figure of the White Movement. Uh, he was also a Freemason involved in a uh, Masonic Lodge in Moscow, uh, the Sun Lodge, I think, or something like that. 
uh, I, you know, I'm not really inclined to point out this Masonic stuff so much, but it's important in this case because it was where he became acquainted with a figure known as Sidney Riley, the so-called Ace of Spies. He is a fascinating figure. He allegedly died uh, after being abducted and tortured uh, as part of Operation Trust, a uh, project run by the Cheka. Uh, during uh, the aftermath of the revolution, it was basically a phony Russian monarch uh, organization set up to lure members of the Supreme Monarchist Council into uh, this trap in Russia by making them believe that there was a vibrant uh, anti-Bolshevik movement within uh, Moscow proper. It, at least in theory, it wasn't. But uh, again, there's there's so much about operation trust that the official histories in my opinion really cover up i mean first off riley is usually depicted as a british spy in most western sources who was the sort of crown jewel of trust uh, abducting and killing but there's actually a lot of compelling evidence that he was a double agent for the checkout which became the kgb that he was not killed as part of operation trust and also that the Cheka became very concerned by Operation Trust, and in fact uh, were quite worried that the white movement was using it to penetrate their own intelligence services, which is one of the reasons why they shut it down rather abruptly in the mid-20s, despite it supposedly being a, such a huge success. So, yeah, there's a lot of uh, interesting things with that but anyway uh, Guchkov had dealings with Riley for years uh, despite his uncertainties as to who Sidney was working for uh, you'll probably find this interesting doc but Guchkov was also close to General Wrangel uh, he had, uh, was even attempting to get Wrangel to set up a new white intelligence service uh, when the Soviets had launched Operation Trust and you know, again, a big part of why trust was initiated is because Wrangel, working with the Supreme Monarchist Council, was trying to set up a new army to invade Russia with support from the French government, uh, which was very concerning to them for obvious reasons. But uh, Gutschkov also was said to have connections to quote-unquote minority interests among the uh, Reds and the Chekhov. Mm. So that's also interesting. And he seems to have been aware of uh, what Riley was up to in Operation Trust and may have even been aware of his survival. So this is Gutschkov's father. He may have had you know, quite long-standing ties to Soviet intelligence that went through his family uh, so again, all this is really interesting to keep in mind in this you know, really murky netherworld here. Uh, but anyway, uh, it's especially simplistic in light of the ties that DePalin and Gutschev both potentially had to the old P2 uh, BCI, BCCI network as well. Uh, and again, you know, it's quite possible there was also the whole Bulgarian connection through P2 and whatnot. Uh, which, again, uh, I'll point you guys to the Far West series, the first installment. I got into a lot of that. But again, in terms of the fact that Gutschev's father was uh, linked into Operation Trust, it's also, again, <laughs> even more strange in that regard. Uh, and then also you had Trubotsky. He was another guy who had uh, a quite a prestigious family within um, uh, Tsarist Russia, I believe 
he actually, I think his grandfather, Trubetsky, I believe his grandfather actually might have been a major ideologue of Eurasianism, if I'm not mistaken. But not I really. Wrong with that. Uh, but anyway, you know, these guys, it was just, you know, there's all these family ties uh, that are so fascinating to all of this. Uh, another thing, too, that I'll point out real quick about uh, Sidney Riley is that he also set up um, the International Anti-Bolshevik League, or was a co-founder of it in, uh, around 1920s. And this was essentially the uh, the first, I want to say, uh, an attempt to really set up like an anti-communist international or something to that effect. So... It's another sort of strange component of this. But anyway, uh, these families, they've been involved in intrigues in Eastern and Western intelligence circles for decades. And that makes the next point I'm about to bring up all the more interesting. So for years, the U.S. used various uh, variations on a, a pseudo-chivalric order known as the Sovereign Order of St. John to organize various Eastern European anti-communist slash captive nations groups. Many of these were, again, paramilitary in nature, hence why the SOSJ were heavily involved and heavily staffed with former military and intelligence officers. All right, so I want to quote here uh, from the spy, Who Would Be Tsar by Captain Coogan gets into a bit of the role of the OG Order of St. John. And this was set up in Shikshini, Pennsylvania. Again, Pennsylvania. This is near Scranton, Pennsylvania. The longtime Grand Master of this was alleged, well, Grand Chancellor, but he was basically the head, was a rather eccentric figure known as Charles Pichel. Uh, but again, there were a lot of pretty senior military intelligence officers and uh, other guys in very high ranks within the army, the Marine Corps, and so forth, who were active in the Order of St. John. So, quoting here from Trugan, page 283. The Knights may have served as a cover or liaisons to immigrate groups whom the army wished to use. In August 1969, the Soviets leaked a NATO war planning document from the early 1960s to journalists like uh, Stein to show just how destructive a new war would be. The document, which American authorities confirmed as authentic but outdated, stated that scattered indigenous individuals and groups will be deposed of or deposed to take active measures against Soviet bloc forces. To encourage resistance, scores of units would be dropped behind communist lines to engage in subversion or escape and, and or escape and evasion and guerrilla warfare. The document included selected drop zones in Albania, Bulgaria, and Romania. These units would then unite with already active cells in the targeted nations. According to the NATO study, within the first month of operations, it was estimated 14,000 such friendly people uh, would emerge in communist-held areas to launch sabotage, covert propaganda, infiltration in enemy installations, and planned civil disobedience, and formation of groups as active nuclei for future guerrilla organizations. <clears throat> Other sales would be active in nations like Italy and Greece. <laughs> in other words, the NATO document seems to be describing a kind of European-wide Operation Gladio, the anti-communist stay-behind network. When the New York Times approached the Pentagon for comment, it was told by an unnamed official, quote, the plan alluded to 
in the document mailed to Stern sounded a lot like the original orders under which the special forces had been established. This was the mission the special forces was originally organized to perform, he said. They were created to format insurgency. He explained that the special forces were doing an about-face in Vietnam by fighting guerrillas instead of leading them, but this was a natural reversal, he added, since the men must now and thus know a lot about insurgency and its tactics. The official added that there was nothing new about plans for special forces in Europe to carry out their own brand of warfare in the event of a general ground war, and that uh, that this fact had been known since the 10th Special Forces, the original unit, was deployed at Bad Tolls, Germany, founded around 1951. <laughs> so the six Sydney Knights, uh, this is still Coogan, then maybe may have operated as a cover for sections of the U.S. military who were still committed to a vision of using far-right immigrant networks for special warfare operations, despite a strong resistance from the CIA and the Office of Policy Coordination in particular. Through the nights, elements in the military maintained their own off-the-books version of the Volunteer Freedom Corps. <clears throat> and yes, there is definitely a lot of evidence for this. Uh, but again, you know, kind of going back to what I was talking about previously with the Russian fears about the second Barbarossa, this is basically what they are alluding to here. Uh, essentially, nuclear blackmanship would be used <clears throat> along with these fifth columns and these special operations forces to form in an insurgency along with psychological warfare efforts to destabilize Russia in a conventional ground war or even without a ground war. And they were not insane. This is basically what Edward Lansdale, good old elimination by illumination, was trying to do within the Pentagon during this whole era in the late 50s, after the OPC had gotten out of this. It's not really understood, but Lansdale, whose expertise was in psychological warfare, was really the guy who envisioned what became the Joint Special Operations Command. He tried to set up what should become JSOC during the Kennedy administration. And again, he foresaw using limited warfare through special operators and especially psychological warfare to destabilize regimes and a uh, attempt to avoid full-on ground war and nuclear war with the Soviet Union. That's apparently now off the table. Huh. All right, so getting back here to the orders of St. John. So is this nuts? Well, over time, these networks appear to have become involved in Gladio-style terrorism here as well. Yeah. For instance, there was the Tennessee-based Order of St. John, which grew out of the Pitchell Network, and it was implicated in the FBI's PACCON investigation for right-wing terror. And this, uh, this SOSJ may have been involved in supplying arms to domestic terrorists, but also people involved in Iran-Contra. And now I'm going to have a nice reveal for you guys. I'm going to quote from a declassified FBI document that uh, the great Edmund Berger graciously passed along to me that came from this PACCON investigation into the Civilian Material Assistance, the CMA, that was actually involved in Iran-Contra. This was one of the things that came out in it, and they were looking into some of the individuals in it. So this uh, document was filed on July in July 1991. It went from the FBI field office in Atlanta, and it was uh, went it was routed to the Birmingham office, I believe. So a lot of it was unfortunately redacted, but it's getting into the composition of some of the people involved in the CIA. 
or CMA, CMA, the Civilian Material Assistance. One was described as a former African mercenary who was, quote, extremely vicious, dangerous, bad individual, will do anything for money. Another guy was described as somewhat to be cautious, uh, and he's associated with another organization that was redacted, that was a radio expert, and uh, a lot of other curious people here. But the really interesting thing with all of this comes on page five of this. This is describing another one of the individuals here. He was a warrant officer. His name is redacted. He is a member of the National Guards. The Specifically, the 20th Special Forces PSA group is alleged to be a National Guard Special Forces group. I'm quoting from the document here. Okay, this is on page five. In actuality, it is a specialized group which has been trained for behind-the-lines operations in case of nuclear attack. This group was part of Operation Backpack and Operation Quail Shooter, both of which may still be active operations. The 20th group is actually is actually is the legal mercenary force of the military but operates with Task Force 160, also known as the Night Stalkers, out of Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Redacted residence is in Dakar, Alabama, not new. Uh, redacted is listed as on the membership list, and that would be at the CMA here. Okay. So what they're talking about is that this guy who is a part of the CMA is also a member of the 20th Special Forces Group, this National Guard unit. And what they're describing here is a continuity of government operation. Okay. Task Force 160 elsewhere is a part of JSOC, in case you're wondering, with the Night Stalkers. So this is a member of a Special Forces Group engaged in continuity of government operations consorting with a right-wing militant group. And the CMA was also involved with another group called the Phantom Legion, which was almost entirely comprised of former special operations figures. And this Tennessee-based Order of St. John that grew out of the Shikshin Knights that Charles Pichel had set up. Okay. This is not a joke. Amazing. This is a group that was involved in very serious operations that had ties from very, that had support from very elite military units. Okay. And it was working with one of these groups of the Order of St. John. So, yeah. There's definitely a lot of credibility to this notion that it was being, that the original Shikshini Knights were being used also to stash these military assets. Because again, when you look at their military uh, role in there, it's general this, admiral this, colonel this. You don't see a lot of privates or corporals or anything like that. It's general. General Charles Willoughby, General Emmanuel Shepard, okay, General Pedro Del Valle. These are the people that were involved with this group, all right? And people like Charles Willoughby, he had very close ties to the OUMB, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationals, Banderite Faction, 
which was a very militant and violent group. It uh, was the key component of the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations. It collaborated at times with the Nazis during the Second World War. It had an armed component, the UPA, which was known at times to liquidate Jewish villages in Ukraine with farming tools. This was one of the major outfits that we looked to to provide us with paramilitary forces to be deployed in the Soviet Union. It was a part of Operation Bloodstone. This is one of the things that we originally founded the Special Forces for. Okay, so you had this component of it, Operation Bloodstone, which was intended to destabilize the Soviet Union. You had, quote-unquote, Gladio in Western Europe, which would be initiated in the event that the Soviets invaded Europe. And you had the same thing here in the United States in the event that there was a nuclear war that incapacitated the government. They were all tied to these different special forces groups, special operations forces, and they all were working in collaboration with these various far-right and nationalistic forces. Okay. This has been very thoroughly documented by the investigations by the Italian government into P2 in Europe. And as I just read from the statements here, the Soviets had linked, uh, leaked a lot of the military doctrines for this. It's been acknowledged at this point that this was a, <laughs> for many years, this was a plan of the U.S. military. I mean, this whole use of special operators in this, and I'm just now telling you guys a freaking FBI document. And for the record, PACCON was abruptly ordered terminated in 1991. Well, I wonder why. Hmm. Gosh, Doc, why do you think they might have terminated this freaking investigation? Maybe because they discovered all these connections to COG? Yeah, yeah, most likely. All right, so this is what the order of St. John is. All right, so please let that sink in here for a moment, okay? All right, so to continue on here, there are a lot of variations on this Shik Shinny group in PA. All right, so... The Tennessee one was one of them, and it wasn't the only one engaged in militancy. There were some other variations. One of them was this whole thing with the Order of the White Eagle. This is one I did a show with George of Cavdev on, which there's also some very compelling evidence of the existence of that that I'm not going to get into because I don't want us to get too far sidetracked in the woods here. But there was a very curious one that is based out of Florida and headed by a grandmaster known as Nicholas Papa Nikolai, I think. This is an interesting guy. He is a Greek-American businessman. He's involved in the World Congress of Families, which both Malfia and Vladimir Yukakon are sponsors of. In fact, Papa Nikolai has been quite close to this Vladimir Yukonin guy for quite a few years. Yukonin set up his own Orthodox charity, the Foundation of Andrea I, and also a think tank called the World Public Forum, which sponsored the, quote, Dialogue of Civilizations group, or whatever it was. Uh, so nearly, it was a forum, basically, that was heralded for nearly a decade on the island of Rhodes. I think it was started around 2012, and it continued with that till around 2012. Uh, I think it started in 2002 and continued to around 2012 or something like that, maybe 2014. Uh, but anyway, 
uh, all this was eventually rolled into what became the DOC Research Institute. Uh, and the World Public Forum also had overlap with the World Congress of Families. In fact, Yukonin's wife was active in the World Congress of Families while he was the co-founder of uh, the World Public Forum and so on. And uh, Malfia was also a sponsor of the World Congress of Families. So anyway, another co-founder of the WPF is this Papa Nicola guy who continues to play a role in the DOC Research Institute as recently as 2023. Just gave a whole presentation, I believe, in January about uh, their recent efforts, if I'm not mistaken. And he's also still the Grand Master of this Florida-based Sovereign Order of St. John. So who are some of the other members of this group? Well, they include General William Boykin and Rick Joyner of Morning Star Ministries. So both Boykin and uh, Papa Nikolai are active in Joyner's, Joyner's Morning Star Ministry and his Oak Initiative as well. And past grandmasters of this SOSJ include Krillin Edelin de Berg and Prince Roberto Petrino, both of whom were active in Mitchell's SOSJ during the 1970s. So yes, all this lineage here. So who is this General William Jerry Boykin guy? <laughs> well, gosh, he co-founded the Delta Force, and he was a former head of the Joint Special Operations Command. And yes, there have been reports linking this SOSJ to paramilitary training as well. And that creates a really interesting prospect, namely the possibility that a node of a domestic stay-behind network is in league with these Russian monarchist circles, and ones who may be actively involved in efforts to destabilize Ukraine through both paramilitary and psychological operations going back to 2004. So keep this in mind as our next subjects come up. But again, Malfia, this guy, again, I want to emphasize, was also sponsoring a lot of the early paramilitary operations in the Ukraine. Okay. Now, I also want to step back here and just say, in fairness, a lot of the sources here on Malfia and its links to these white Russians and what have you come from an interesting book called Putin's People by Catherine Belton. And in turn, another one of her major sources, and this was Anton Surikov, mm. who was a co-founder of this uh, glorious private military company known as Far West Limited. And Surikov is a really, really interesting guy because a big part of what he was engaged in was also psychological warfare. Though technically he was a quote-unquote political scientist. He was a protege of Andrea uh, Kokoshian, I believe, who in turn was very closely associated with Henry Kissinger. In fact, he may still be working with Kissinger. Interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. He had a lot of contacts uh, in the West and was a regular participant in the Dartmouth uh, conferences, which guys like David Rockefeller have been sponsors of, and of course Kissinger. Uh, so, yeah, but this guy, man, I mean, he is actually one of the figures who outed some of his cohorts in Far West Limited, and I believe it even also revealed some of the links that Halliburton had to Far West Limited. So, I mean, he uh, was actually one of the co-owners, allegedly, of the online version of uh, 
Pradvia, uh, you know, the infamous, what had been the communist uh, official organ of the Communist Party in the Soviet Union for many years. Um, the Communist Party still controls the print version of it, but allegedly the online version was sold to the directors of Far West Limited in the North. Mm. They used it to air a lot of grievances against some of their uh, cohorts in the West and even against each other. It was this is why it was kind of interesting to me, you know, when you were talking about uh, all the TRS people shit posting. Yeah. Because it was basically the same thing Far West Limited was doing. In it does, it does sound very similar. Uh, you know, again, but these are, you know, really senior, I mean, Russian intelligence officers. Again, Surikov was involved in the GRU, uh, most likely in the, the heroin trafficking that they were involved in in the 1980s in the Afghan-Soviet War. And then later, he appears to have been the a uh, handler of the uh, notorious Chesn separatist and terrorist uh, Shamil uh, Basfia, I believe, uh, who was a big part of the Georgian and um, Uzbekistan war, and then later a lot of the Chesnian stuff uh, that Russia was involved in. So, you know, Surikov was a very serious guy, but I mean, he also uh, was a major source to many Western journalists for, you know, Putin's network and his contacts. And again, it doesn't necessarily make this stuff untrue, but there is a slant to it. But it is fascinating uh, that this uh, monarchist network has played such a significant and little understood role in this, because it seems like it was actually the monarchist network uh, who really had convinced Putin to start embracing orthodoxy as uh, a tool of psychological warfare, among other things. And a lot of it really went back to this uh, Sergei uh, DePaling guy uh, who had known Putin, I think, at least since uh, 1991. And again, he... Uh, you know, I don't know if he was directly involved with the Supreme Monarchist Council, but some of the figures that he's uh, been linked to definitely. Uh, in fact, one of the guys that he's active with in his foundations, another uh, member of the uh, Russian nobility, whose name I'm not going to destroy right now, but he was a former chairman of the Supreme Monarchist Council. Uh, so, mm. yeah, they uh, Putin, obviously, allegedly uh, first encountered the Palin at uh in ceremony when they brought back Grand Duke Vladimir, uh, who DePalin had been a supporter of, and uh, who had been a part of the possibly proto uh, intelligence, setting up the proto intelligence network that the Order of St. John was based on all those years ago. So again, there's, there's a lot of weird connections to this. Apparently, Malfi, I might have also encountered DePalin at this time as well. As I said before, he was a protege of him, but uh, Putin had encountered him around 1991 in St. Petersburg, which ironically also turns up in a lot of the mythos. Yes. Of course, St. Petersburg was where uh, the, uh, we'll see, okay, the, these sovereign orders of St. John claim descent from the Russian line of succession of the Knights of Malta. And this happened after the Knights of Malta lost the island of Malta to Napoleon around the end of uh, the 18th century. And they briefly relocated to Russia under the protection of uh, Tsar Peter. And uh, they were based out of St. Petersburg. Mm -hmm. So it kind of brings things a bit full circle, I suppose. But um, yeah. So anyway, uh, 
And all these guys seem to become connected in the early 90s in St. Petersburg, which was uh, during the time frame when Putin was on his rise to power. This was also allegedly the time he was involved with a lot of the organized crime elements around there, including potentially Simeon Mogliovich. So, yeah, it's very interesting to see how this network of monarchistic uh, white Russians played a role in this. And especially since, again, it's important to emphasize these guys grew up in France and this white Russian community and the Palin and Gutchkov and uh, uh, Trubisky, I believe, uh, were all, you know, active in these Geneva-based financial circles and what have you as well, which also had ties to propaganda Dewey, to BCCI and whatnot. So there were definitely linkages to Western intelligence as well. So this is just, you know, just a fascinating thing about these monarchists. I mean, they were really uh, at the same time where they were allegedly involved in this ring with the KGB because they did have contact formally with the KGB during the 1980s. They were also active in a lot of these other networks tied into Western intelligence as well. So uh, these guys had a very influential position in both the intelligence services of uh the United States and uh, certainly Russia, I think, in this regard. And, uh, you know, this is a major component, I think, to a lot of this that isn't understood. And, you know, this is something we're also going to look at in Far West Limited series in regards to Ukrainians and especially the OUNB, because, again, they were in a very similar situation. They had a lot of links to the KGB as well. And, again, that gave them a lot of access to both Eastern and Western intelligence services like these white Russians here. So, and, again, these guys, as we have alluded to, before there's been this animosity between them over the Ukrainian connection for almost a century now. Should Ukraine be independent? This is something that the monarchists have fiercely opposed since the 1920s. They have always wanted Russia to be restored to the borders that it had with the Russian Empire. Obviously, this is a non-starter with the Ukrainian nationalists who basically wanted to whittle Russia down to the borders it had during the Middle Ages. So, yeah, this is at the heart, I think, really of, you know, possibly leading us towards the Third World War here. So this is no small thing. It's very significant. And as Doc has alluded to, you know, this is playing out in far-right circles in, and also, I mean, in establishment circles, frankly, for that matter as well. Uh, if I might add, Rick, Lush, yeah, Dolph, I was um, gonna add, do you have anything to add here? I don't, yeah, of course, of course. I, I didn't, uh, I didn't want to interrupt you. I've just said that your, your analysis was just so thorough and uh, conclusive. I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to like interrupt, but I would say that um, the Orthodox Church, uh, which is often glossed over by a lot of these experts, they ignore sorry, the presence of the Orthodox Church, the Orthodox Church has been a spy, spying apparatus of the uh, Russian nation since the advent of the czars and even the uh, Bolsheviks and people like Stalin still kept the Orthodox Church intact despite, uh, you know, not even agreeing with it, uh, not even like, uh, not even agreeing with it in, in um, uh, you know, and it's saying, believing in it, you know, as a spiritual uh, sort of uh, apparatus. They they more or less saw it as like a means or an intelligence apparatus to expand different kind of spy networks. And 
presently what you see playing out in America, and my analysis is not going to be quite as thorough as you because I've not looked into you know all the intricacies of you know of these networks, which you clearly have, which you know is admirable. Uh, but for what I've seen is that the Russian Orthodox has now uh, primed a lot of the far right elements in America to embrace not only monarchy, but to embrace the Russian Orthodox and also embrace this concept called the new Rome. Basically, they want to put Russia, and I was going to save this for later when I was going to talk about Dugan, they want to put Russia at the center of the uh, world and and put them at the center of like any of geopolitics, mainly being a Roman Empire to where they can expand uh, these networks in every single nation they, they can. And uh, this is this is their agenda, and this is not to play into like anti-Russian hysteria that often like uh, plagues, you know, political discourse in these circles. It's it's kind of hard to, you know, take a side on either side because there are people that are like pro-American and pro-USA, but at the same time, you have to acknowledge that Russia is playing uh, with the uh, big Zabinsky's sort of um, you know concepts. And also playing with the, you know, these far right uh, groups, which are volatile and easily manipulated. And I think in many cases, I was going to expand also upon the PatCon and also the uh, Sovereign Order of St. John uh, situation you were saying as a front that's being used, much like the P2 lodges are used as a front. That's what I think a lot of these uh, white extremist groups are now. They're just fronts. So what happens a lot of times these white extremist groups are incompetent, incapable, and they can't get much of anything done, but they cause enough disruption uh, within America itself, and they cause enough mishaps in itself to cause a kind of social uh, distortion and into itself that you know any kind of network can move, navigate. They do this conversely, by the way. In other circles, such as the far left, only other nations, I think, are manipulating the far left, especially like China. But I won't get into that, especially. But I think this is part of the move of a lot of the Orthodox, uh, Russian Orthodox movement is navigating their way into far right circles to where they can manipulate them and mold them pretty much. And they are very easy to mold and they are um, very naive and not uh, not very knowledgeable about any of these extensive networks, which are playing out uh, in America. And I, I will say that also the neo-reactionary um, type of ideology is taking hold in most far-right communities. Like most people that are of like higher IQ in these, these networks, they're embracing stuff like the dark enlightenment and neo-reactionary. And this, this is largely just monarchist ideology and traditionalist ideology, um, you know, repackaged, I would say, into white nationalism and white extremism. Uh, in many cases. So that's going to be interesting to see how this plays out in, in the future.
mean, I, I will point out one final thing on this here before we uh, get into some of these other actors here. But, uh, you know, I think we're always so accustomed to looking at these groups and how intelligence services manipulate them. But I mean, especially when you look at a lot of these groups that have, because again, the Orthodox Church, you had the, you know, two different variations on it. You had the Orthodox Church outside of Russia as well, which in turn mm. was used as a front by yes. U.S. intelligence community. And there was a lot of overlap with the, and the official Orthodox Church. And, you know, again, it's it's just interesting, you know, we we tend to, you know, or you look at the prism of these uh, groups being manipulated by intelligence services. But in the case of like the Orthodox Church or some of these monarchist groups or like the OUNB, they had a presence in both intelligence services. And I think that that gave them the ability in some ways to manipulate the intelligence services uh, to their own ends as well. And also, when you look at just the litany of criminal activity, a lot of these groups drag the intelligence services into, uh, to my mind, you know, it almost creates a kind of whitey bulger type scenario. Uh -huh. Yes. Uh, and you could even see that. I mean, I think arguably dealing with uh, the far right in the U.S., because again, oh, yeah. you know, it's well known that the FBI has uh you know penetrated these groups thoroughly for years now look at look at adam waffen and look at the the temple of blood situation that illustrates this uh comprehensively but i mean like in the case of something like fraser glenn miller i mean this is a guy you know who totally torpedoed the 88 sedition trial that the uh, bureau had put together and they didn't do anything to him and a big part of that is because he had been an informant for years and he would also probably uh murdered multiple people before he finally shot up a synagogue i think in 2010 or something yeah. like that so you know it put the bureau in a situation where it's like well, what do you do you've got this guy who's an informant who you've covered up for the fact that he's probably killed multiple people and if that ever comes out you're screwed and that's essentially exactly what happened and i mean how many you know, informants are there like this in the books you know quite a bit quite yeah. a bit i would i would suffice yeah exactly so i just the way a lot of this is played out i mean i think it's put some of these groups and individuals in a unique position to also compromise some of these intelligence services and again i think this is why you know when you look at the third world war here it's just you know it's being driven by these ancient uh rivalries that i mean almost have no benefits especially to modern america you know yeah that, that's kind of odd also um recluses the ball how the balkans figure in it and how uh putin's pan slavism also uh is uh made as a type of propaganda that's spread across uh the entire eastern Bloc, and how that sort of uh entices certain groups and like i mentioned previously it appears in the balkans and it's interesting you mentioned bulgaria as well which i believe you even mentioned that it was largely a satellite of the u.s intelligence well yeah it was uh, really because robert maxwell was really used to penetrate that heavily uh going into the 80s uh, because that was really at the forefront of a lot of the money laundering initiatives that the kgb became involved in with the drug trafficking and what have you so yeah it was it's huge in our you know sort of ongoing attempts to uh corrupt and gangsterfy the uh the well security I, services. I would also argue that albania and also probably um, uh, Croatia 
in many cases also are mirror a lot of the stuff that happens in Bulgaria. And I would say Serbia is firmly on the side of Russia in, in terms of uh, working with uh, Russian intelligence. And, and uh, probably I would say Albania and Croatia are probably U.S. satellites as well uh, that are involved in uh, sort of dirty and corrupt uh, criminal activity. And it all circulates to uh, whatever U.S. intelligence is there, uh, just con like conversely Serbia does to Russia. So it's it's interesting to see these things play out. And now they have the Internet and the Internet, they can they have a large, vast canvas uh, to where you can see these various different national, you know, nationalist from the Ukraine. And you can see from Croatia, you Bulgaria and all the rest of these groups They're They are networking with the far right here in America and they are. Um, making friends with uh, people like TRS and uh, even people like Bausman's uh, representatives and many of the Russian Orthodox representatives. Yeah. I mean, it really is something to behold. Well, um, let's shift gears here at least somewhat uh, for a moment and talk some Sean Moon. All right. So regular listeners are no doubt familiar with this Cretan who currently heads the Rod of Iron Ministries, a.k.a. the Church of the Machine Gun. He is, of course, the son of Unification founder Sun Myung Moon, who bankrolled much of the modern-day Christian fundamentalist movement, uh, various death squads in Latin America, and so many other wonderful things during the Cold War. Sean has taken up the mantle and is doing his part to sponsor extremism as well. Uh, it's a strong possibility that uh, Japanese Prime Minister, former Japanese Prime Minister Abe was uh, assassinated by uh, an individual who had at least come into contact with Sean Moon not uh, too long before he took out the former Prime Minister and may have also been active in his uh quote-unquote church <laughs> uh, so anyway uh, can you briefly run down and give us a little bit of sean moon's involvement with charles bowsman's group there? okay i'm i'm gonna try my best to be brief but uh what i think um his involvement with uh, bowsman is largely and this is there there are believe it or not there are ties in indirect you know not directly but indirectly to trs as well uh in sean moon is and let me get to Bowsman's connections first. I believe Sean. I believe uh, Sean Moon probably became acquainted with Bowsman because his brother uh, Justin. I think his brother Justin is uh, runs a type of uh, you know ammunition company called K K Hair K R Arms, and uh, they largely make guns in Pike County, uh, Lackawanna. Wayne and Pike counties in northeastern Pennsylvania. And that's where I believe a largely the connections to Bowsman came about because Bowsman himself, which I didn't mention this previously, is very deep into the agribusiness. He's very he's a businessman, uh, uh, you know, supposedly a pillar of the community in Pennsylvania. Uh, and in addition to that, he also um, runs this thing called Soya Tech, which is, you know, kind of coincides to. Uh, with a lot of these these arms uh, dealers, so I I think primarily Sean Moon probably made forged an alliance with uh, with Bowsman, and also maybe even through the sort of formal and informal networks that were surrounding Steve Bannon and uh, the Trump supporters. I think he was uh, very instrumental in that because Bowsman was actively engaged online. 
uh, with this one particular uh, private group, which was, you know, stop the steal uh, for Lancaster County. And uh, that's where a lot of his connections to uh, people that later would storm the Capitol. And also Bowsman himself would storm the Capitol, Capitol, and he would see that uh, a lot of these people were apprehended and rounding up. And somehow afterwards, Bowsman just uh, was spirited away to uh, Russia afterwards to where the media went to go interview him about it. And they went to go confront him about it. He was right on Russian TV. So I think Sean Moon largely is probably connected to Bowsman through his uh, his brother's arms uh, company. Yeah, and one other thing I'll point out about this, because, yeah, he's uh, Sean Moon is based in Pennsylvania, and I believe it's actually uh, near the Poconos region, if I'm not mistaken, uh, which is interesting because, again, he's not far uh from the compound that uh what's his name uh the turkish cleric golan has i think they're like within 45 minutes or so of one another and this is the guy that um periodically there have been rumblings that he could be used to uh overthrow edrigan in uh, turkey uh, of course he has quite a substantial following among some of the uh pan-turkish nationalist groups and so forth so uh yeah he's right there and then also um brian kohlberger uh the guy who's been implicated in the uh ohio murder or idaho murders uh involving the co-eds there uh in moscow of all places mm. uh mm. his family actually was based out of that whole region as well but it's actually not that far from shikshini pennsylvania either interesting yeah 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 where the uh og order of saint john was from and of course it was said that uh that, uh yeah the uh, of course the, the there's a lot of theories as to whether or not they had a precursor to it prior to its founding in the 1950s but one group it's been put forward was known as the blue lamu which uh charles it was you know again kind of a secret society charles Pichel, the longtime grand chancellor the sosj was involved in it uh, along with uh some other interesting characters including uh boris brazel who was an agent of uh grand duke uh Cyril, the father father of Vladimir, whose new uh, whose family line is who now the Supreme Monarchist Council recognizes the rightful heir to the uh, Russian throne, but the Blue Lamu actually appears to have been an extension of an intelligence network that uh, Cyril was running, uh, which also had ties to Nazi Germany and a lot of other insane stuff. But again, I don't want to get too sidetracked with all. Well, of- let me let me ask you, Recluse, are you familiar with like uh, Sean Moon's brother's uh, connection to the arms uh, company? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was yeah definitely aware of that, which I think okay. is the most interesting aspects of this. Because again, you know, going into some of the stuff we've been talking about with you know Iran Contra and all this yeah. other stuff. I mean, yeah, it's. I mean, it would only make sense that, you know, um, Bowsman being kind of a, a, maver, a major mover and shaker in, like, the community uh, would probably run upon these networks. But at the time, you know, the the uh, infamous dreaded uh, QAnon also was kind of, like, uh, winding down. But, uh, no, there's no doubt he was probably instrumental in a lot of those uh, networks as well. Uh, let me emphasize that Bowsman was involved in January 6th. He was 
part of the people that ran into uh, the Capitol. He's caught on camera. Uh, in addition to that, he he like I said, he was spirited away to Russia, and then he appears on Russian TV and he's explaining the whole incident there. Uh, so it's just all bizarre. The the Sean Moon connection, where Sean Moon is actually in the same barn. Uh, that also Mike Enoch and the NJP spoke out in you know August fifteenth, two thousand twenty. Uh, coincidentally, also Mike Enoch lives in a gated property in the Poconos as well. Uh, that's kind of odd, uh, considering the fact that he's a humble podcaster. Uh, so some of these things, you know, are just they could be coincidence coincidences, but they just don't add up in many ways. Uh, to not have involvement. Uh, I mean, yeah, when you see that whole area, I mean, it seems like it's been used uh, by a lot of these extremist groups for a lot of years. Because I should point out, too, there were in some of the, you know, kind of uh, historical, quote unquote, historical accounts, the SOSJ it was said that Frank Winters, who was the longtime kind of head of the KKK in Pennsylvania and later became a... Uh, a member in the Order of St. John, uh, and he also apparently did some kind of paramilitary training around the Poconos as well on their behalf. So, yeah, it's it just seems like this whole region has that long history, which is why I think it's most interesting that you're saying, yeah, all these guys, like even the knock is even based out of there and whatnot. Now, now let me also add the what I was saying about the odd, the oddest thing, though, is there's a guy named Towns. Uh, he was a former member of the Mooney cult. He, this guy has, he literally just joins cults. He's been a member of every cult in existence. He was a member of the Mooney cult. He was there on Bowsman's property doing security. He was right there doing security <laughs> right there on Bowsman's property uh, while he was harboring some of the other people in TRS. Um, now Towns is interesting because Towns, has connection to another affiliate of TRS called the Manor Boon. Uh, the Manor Boon also was uh, sponsored by Charles Bowsman. So if you're wondering, like, the TRS connection to Bowsman, um, what it goes beyond. And when you uh, say Manor Boon, by the way, you're that's like the same as the sort of uh, concept of the Curios, right? Yes. Where holds we've been uh, exploring. Yes, it's the, same, it, it's the same exact concept, yes. Interesting. So this is another group then that Bowsman is also sponsoring. So is this yes. a more uh, kind of militant one then? Or? It, it's a more paramilitary-oriented group, but it also has a... See, a lot of these 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 uh, these groups, they have outwardly facing sort of political groups, but at their inner core, they also have uh, paramilitary groups as well. So they have like a political front-facing group and at their uh, inner core they also have sort of a paramilitary element as well uh, but like it, the Manor Bone has since sort of cut ties with the TRS they're they are doing um, they're engaging in secrecy now they're no longer engaged in the TRS or NJP networks so there has been a type of schism Well, also, too, I often wonder about that. Uh, it kind of seems like a lot of times these groups love to uh, stage these schisms and call each other names, but um, the collaboration doesn't necessarily stop. But again, who knows? 
but as we've sort of explored before, there does seem to be a lot of theater involved in this. Well, let, let me also let me also add that Bowsman actually uh, distanced himself from NJP and TRS, which is probably why, probably within the next uh, two, you know, few years, you're probably going to see a disintegration of uh, this network. You're going to see probably a lot of people fleeing from it and a lot of people, you know, abandoning ship because Bowsman has. Uh, pretty much said he doesn't like these groups because they are anti-Christian, and he has he has uh, he has taken his money off the table to most of these groups. So that's something to look forward uh, to in the future. Uh, yeah, no, I would definitely question his motives for taking the money off the table for these groups. Um, that kind of brings us here, I guess, to the last point we might uh, touch on here before we wrap up, and that would be Dugan. Uh, do you okay. Have else to add on Dugan on this? Yeah, my my favorite, uh, my favorite, one of my favorite topics. Um, I have to say, this is you know, I we could do an entire episode on Dugan, and I think Dugan is. I'm not going to say he's misunderstood. I'm going to say a lot of political analysts and a lot of people who research Dugan don't understand sort of his in game or what he is about. And this is not to defend Dugan. This is just to say that a largely a bit of his beliefs come primarily from uh, Harold Kind, you know, uh, Kinder, uh, which was this um, British, uh, British, uh, I believe, geographer that believed that the main pivot point in securing all the continents is primarily on the Euro Eurasian axis. And, you know, as you've discussed previously, Eurasianism did not originate with Dugan. It's uh, something that's been central to a lot of the different, um, you know, I ideologists, um, including Karl Haushofer, which, believe it or not, had a very instrumental influence on Dugan's uh, formative years. Uh, in addition to that, Dugan was into the occult underground in Russia. And if if I might extrapolate about uh carl haushofer carl haushofer uh believed that uh he's largely the architect of the labens realm uh you know of of nazi germany he wanted to expand the entire eastern uh block of europe for the uh, germanic races uh but however dugan is using this uh differently dugan is using this mainly uh as an instrument uh, through this idea called new the new Rome that he is also using the Russian Orthodox Church to springboard a lot of his ideas and also to disseminate a lot of his ideas into I would say white nationalist uh, you know communities and and also white extremist communities in addition to that he's also um, he's also like partnered with this uh, publishing group called Arctos Arctos believe it or not uh, has, some inroads to a lot of the early alt-right uh, groups like Identity Europa. There are many representatives of Arctos uh, within Identity Europa, not just not just Spencer or Spencer's wife are advocates. Uh, but Dugan also additionally uh, was very instrumental uh, in the formative ideology of people like Matthew Heimbach and uh, many of the people on the alt-right, uh, I would say he provides a lot of the intellectual, uh, you know, material and and um, exegesis for 
uh, many people on, on the far right. And that's his primary, I would say, contribution to uh, far right communities in within America. Um, and that's primarily uh, how he disseminates his information. I mean, I also think that the connection with the orthodoxy, too, is an intriguing one. I mean, I know it uh, it might seem contrary to a lot of people, but uh, the thing about orthodoxy is, I mean, Gnosticism never really ended in it. Um, certainly a big part of the Hermetic revival or Hermetic discovery in uh, Europe during the Renaissance came from uh, Plethion, uh, the uh, Greek bishop in the uh, Orthodox Church who essentially had advocated, I mean, a full-blown uh, kind of Neoplatonic pagan ideology <clears throat> as a uh, restoration for the Eastern Empire, if you will. Uh, it was a little too late for them, but he brought a lot of this over to uh, Italy, which is where uh, so much of the Hermetic uh, stuff ultimately came from. And uh, yeah, I think that in the whole, there's always been a bit more of a uh, room for some of those more mystical inclinations within orthodoxy than we yeah. see in the Western church. So I think, I mean, again, obviously another, uh, you know, even probably more relevant contemporary uh, example that would be uh, cosmos, cosmism mm -hmm. as well, especially since uh, the whole concept of the Nunosphere, which uh, was partly... Uh, uh, developed within cosmetist circles uh, has become so prevalent now in uh, so many different varieties of the new age and spiritual but not religious communities uh, and again this is something that in russia at least was actually rather closely related to orthodoxy so yeah it's um fascinating how in a lot of ways i mean mysticism really was driven by orthodoxy in Russia and uh, maybe more broadly Slavic culture as opposed to in the West where it was often kind of an underground current and uh, the contemporary Christian faith. Uh, but again, I suppose, I mean, it's also somewhat, uh, you know, overlaps, I guess, a bit with uh, Sufism mm -hmm. and a lot of the branches of Islam. I mean, this is uh, something, you know, that we're going to be looking at in the Far West series, but certainly uh, even within some of these really radical Wahhabist sects uh, that were used by the U.S. intelligence community. There was actually uh, an even broader Sunni network within them that was uh, really, I think, at the forefront of being the instrument that was guiding them. So it's a very peculiar relationship, but again, it's also something that I think makes uh, you know the understanding of the you know, the role that the spirituality and religion plays and some of the uh, the Eastern intelligence services and so forth a little different than what it would be here in the West. Because, I mean, there's always been a much more of a comfort with it than there has been in the West for many years. And one of the central figures within uh, the, uh, you know, alt-right now is a guy named Seraphim Rose, which is uh, quite controversy, controversial because of his background and also because of his... Uh, embrace of a lot of heretical ideals that he has interjected into the um, Russian Orthodoxy, mostly uh, the concept of toll houses and dead souls. And this largely is a Russian Gnostic uh, concept, uh, a Gnostic concept, which has found its way into Russian Orthodoxy. I just wanted to interject that. Yeah, no, I mean, it's fascinating, but I mean, yeah, it's certainly very relevant, I think, with the role that the uh, you know, the kind of struggle for hearts and minds is playing in a lot of this. Uh, 
and certainly it does seem like there is a certain vibrancy on the far right like you're saying within the neo-reactionary uh currents with accelerationism with duganism and i mean yeah they they're also larping as monarchist uh mostly the uh curtis yarvin uh sector not so much the nick land sector they're mainly larping as monarchist online that's their whole entire ideology yeah yeah the neo-monarchist movement yeah yeah yeah, yeah. exactly so yeah, it's uh, it's a heady current, all right. That is for sure. <laughs> Certainly, a yeah. uh, much more dangerous one than many people realize. Well, I think it has been quite a conversation here, and you know, again, uh, I'm probably going to take some heat on this for um, attacking the Russians, maybe a little bit on this, but again, I think it's important to keep in mind, you know, that. Uh, we're currently seeing a lot of sabotage and I mean more direct like drone strikes and things like that unfolding in uh, the Russian Federation as a result of the Ukrainian war. And I just think that it would be foolish to believe that uh, the Russians would not at some point be tempted to engage in the same activities against the United States for sponsoring Ukraine. And also to believe that they wouldn't have the capabilities to do so. Uh, and again, as we've been outlining in this, there you know, certainly are a lot of overlap with some very militant groups in the United States. And also some of these Russian supporters have run paramilitary or have been involved in uh, paramilitary operations themselves. So, I mean, this is something to keep in mind as we spiral into the Third World War. We're probably not going to be able to avoid the consequences of this domestically. And again, with the rise in peculiar infrastructure attacks as any indication, we may not be avoiding this presently. And it will probably only get worse. So again, this is a very serious thing that we all need to i think consider long and hard as uh our so-called leaders push us deeper and deeper uh past the point of no return on the world war three frontier and you know again i tend to believe that the u.s bears the bulk of the responsibility for this conflict and so on and so forth i've taken some heat for saying that but you know again the russians do certainly have their own agenda and i believe that they do have their own networks and contingency plans in place here for us as well and frankly it would be foolish to believe that they didn't and we too have also got our own contingency plans within their government which we will be exploring further in the far west limited series so we will get a glimpse into what could potentially be in the <laughs> sad hopes that maybe we can avoid it. Oh. Jason, do you have anything else you would uh, like to? I would think I would like to thank you, uh, Recluse, for uh, bringing me on to discuss this topic. And I would just say that um, keep your eyes peeled on the Internet for a lot of subversion and also for infiltration on both sides of the political spectrum and be very cautious of uh, what lurks within the internet. Absolutely. Well, on that note, then I suppose we will sign off for now. As always, I want to thank you guys so much for your support and for listening. And with that, I say to you all, good night and good luck to you all.
it. Don't got 86 from the copper queen for singing this. I took it to the gold chain. Blu-ray, my people there, they're feeling me. Down low skin, roll more characters than Stephen King. Said I'm just working at the quarry, y'all. I ain't in a hurry, y'all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki, up. Stuck down in the stick. Hut is hot as hell, I tell you what. Put it up and knock it down. Moving on that big around. Come on, mama, jump down. Turn around, do it for me. Stick it out. Say one, two, three, Geronimo. Jump, baby, we gotta go. Hands tied, blindfold. Jump into that battle zone. I said it's time to get the fuck out. Cause they done let the wolves out. Coming with that heat, mama shooting up the street Mama fight or fight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama no retreat, mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street, tell me that you good for it You want peace, go to war for it Say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump baby, we gotta go Can't patrol it off from Berlin to the great While the greatest walls are bound to fall So legalize it, Vato About a Genghis Chapo Come on, legalize it No need to advertise it The weed cures the cancer Everybody even caught or realized If a farmer don't make cash money When we rock that stash, honey Best believe they sooner take it Out your ass, Sunday. Your maple. It's just that one 